recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris here on Talk Show. Today is Friday, December 21st, 2012. Imagine that. I will be back here at 11 p.m. to talk about that. And that's all I'll say for now. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Today I'm going to present Luke chapter 23. I would like to I would like to have presented it all today, but it's just not going to work that way. I'll get about two thirds of the way through it. Next week I will present the second half of Luke chapter 23, and I will talk about at least one other topic and maybe more. I'll talk about the um, the chronology of the last day of the last days of Christ and, and attempt to clarify that. We saw Luke, what well, we saw Luke chapter 22 end with the mock trial of Yahshua Christ in the court of the high priests. That trial was not a real trial, but probably only served so that the Judeans could draw up the charges which they would present to Pilate. Since in Judea at the time, only the Roman authority had the lawful power to try capital offenses. The scripture will corroborate that for us shortly. The first Herod, the king that the Jews loved to call Herod the Great, he had that power when Judea was a kingdom under Roman law. However, under Herod Archelaus, his son, Judea was reduced to the status of an imperial province, and the local rulers lost that authority. All four Gospels offer quite different perspectives on a mock trial of Yahshua before the high priests. It must be noted that the before different, quite different perspectives of the events of both trials and the crucifixion of Christ was probably the result of the disciples being scattered after Christ was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane which is seen in Mark chapter 14, verse 50. One thing that is apparent in all four Gospels is that there were really no charges of substance worthy of a capital or, or really even of a minor offense which could have been brought, except that the high priests and the scribes cared not for justice, but for expediency. So they merely invented charges, much like the Jewish-controlled governments of the West often do today. As Mark wrote in his version of the account, Mark chapter 14, verse 56, many had testified falsely against him, and the testimonies were not the same. And some arising gave false testimony against him, saying that we heard him saying, I shall destroy this temple made by hand, and after three days I shall build another not made by hand. Christ actually said something similar to that as it's recorded in John chapter 2. Yet not even thusly was their testimony the same. Matthew said, in Matthew 26:59, Then the high priests and the entire council, council sought false testimony against Yahshua that they may kill him. Yet they found not many false witnesses coming forth. But later, too, having come forth, said, He said this, 
I am able to destroy the temple of Yahweh, and in three days I will build it. While on the surface the accounts seem to conflict in many places, because of the differing perspectives, in many ways they complement and corroborate each other, and there are no real conflicts. Luke did not record the matters concerning the temple, but all three Gospels generally agree where Luke records the high priest as having asked, and I will read from Luke twenty-two sixty-seven: If you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, If I should tell you, you shall not believe it. And if I shall ask, by no means will you answer. But from this time, The Son of Man shall be sitting in the right hand of the power of Yahweh. The Apostle John in his Gospel did not record any of the charges which the high priests and their followers had contrived before bringing Yahshua before Pilate. With this we will begin Luke chapter 23, verse 1. And rising, the whole multitude of them brought him before Pilate. Then they began accusing him, saying, We have found him perverting our nation and preventing giving tribute tax to Caesar and saying of himself to be the anointed king. Here it is evident from the context that even the leaders of the Jains knew that the destiny for the prophecy Christ was to be king of Israel. Yet they denied its having materialized in their own time. The word diastrepho here is to pervert. It's literally to twist. So we see that that idea of twisting something to pervert it, to corrupt it, was, it is an old idea, right? The Greek word Christos is primarily an adjective meaning anointed. And that is how it is used in this passage. It is not, as the King James and other versions have it, a substantive in this passage. A substantive is an, of a word or group of words that aren't normally a noun by themselves, but they become a noun in the way that they're used. In Greek, the definite article used with an adjective or with a verb becomes a substantive, it becomes a noun. Here, the word Christos, the adjective, is not a substantive used to designate the Christ. If it were a substantive, it would have appeared with the definite article. Yet neither of the Greek words for anointed or king here appear with the article. And therefore, Christos is an adjective modifying the indefinite noun for king. On many occasions, the King James and other versions render Christos as Christ, regardless of the context, often in spite of the context, when it should have been rendered as the adjective, anointed or sometimes even as a noun referring to some entity other than the Christ. Specifically, on many occasions, 
the body of Christ. The high priest in Judea at this time had the authority to try and punish criminals in all but capital offenses, which they were required to send to the Roman authorities. If the Jews desired to have Christ tried by Pilate, then it would be, it would be for a capital offense and they would need charges worthy of such an offense. Therefore, they contrived two false charges, charges that didn't come up in any of the gospel accounts at the trial, at the Judean trial of Christ in the court of the high priests. The charges are false because Christ never taught not to pay taxes. In fact, he explicitly, as, as it's mentioned in the Gospels, he explicitly taught that the people should pay their taxes to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, because Caesar's name was on the coin. And Christ never explicitly, explicitly claimed for himself to be king in spite of the fact that others made that claim for him, he never made the claim explicitly. Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, and Luke chapter 23 all begin in the same place in the general narrative, with Christ being taken before Pilate. John's record of this, of this event begins at verse 28 of chapter 18 in his gospel, as it was later numbered. Note that the charges contrived in the court of the high priest must have been brushed aside and substituted for these charges listed here in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2. These charges which amount to tax revolt and to insurrection. None of the other Gospels record the charges as Luke did However, all three of the other Gospels corroborate Luke's record here, where we see it, Matthew 27, in Mark 15, and in John 18.33, that when Christ first addresses, I'm sorry, when Pilate first addresses Christ, he asks him, are you the king of the Judeans? Therefore, Pilate is recorded by all as if he was responding to these charges, which only Luke records. Luke chapter 23, verse 3. Then Pilate asks him, saying, Are you the king of the Judeans? And replying, he said to him, So you say. Then Pilate said to the high priest, and the crowds, I find not any guilt in this man. Christ had a, 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 um, a habit, I would call it. He had a habit of taking a question directed towards him and turning it into a statement. Are you the king of the Judeans? So you say. He Doing that, he puts the testimony in the mouth of his questioner while he neither 
affirms or denies the question itself. The Gospel of Matthew supplies further dialogue between Pilate and Christ at this point, where it says, at Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14, and to that which had been brought as an accusation against him by the high priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate says to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not reply to him with even one word, so for the governor to wonder exceedingly. And Mark chapter 15, verses 4 and 5 corroborate the exchange as it is recorded by Matthew, which Luke simply did not record. Verse 5. But they were more strongly saying that he agitates the people throughout all of Judea, even beginning from Galilee as far as here. Then Pilate, hearing, inquired whether the man is a Galilean, and discovering that he is from the jurisdiction of Herodas, he sent him to Herodas, he also being in Jerusalem in those days. Let me make a side note here. Galilee was the jurisdiction of Herodas. Herod was a tetrarch. Herod the tetrarch. This Herod, this particular Herod. This particular Herod had become a tetrarch long after the kingdom was divided into four tetrarchies. The four tetrarchies each fourth was ruled over by one of the heirs or family members of Herod originally, the, the first Herod, Herod the Great, when the kingdom was deprived of Herod Archelaus, because Herod Archelaus was an overly harsh man and actually abused far too many people, and was banished by the Romans. As far as Josephus says, he was banished to Lugdunum in Gaul which became the city of Lyons. Lugdunum also be, was the, um, the seat of the famous early Christian bishop Irenaeus. From that time, from the banishment of Herod Archelaus, Judea was split into four pieces, and each of its rulers was called a tetrarch, which meant a ruler of a fourth a ruler of a quarter of the kingdom. Simply because Herod, Herod the Tetrarch's jurisdiction was Galilee doesn't mean that Pilate did not have jurisdiction over Galilee. He certainly did. Pilate was the Roman prefect or governor or proconsul that there's historical debate over his actual title. I believe the inscriptions admit him to be a proconsul. Well, well, Pilate being the Roman proconsul, he was the Roman authority over all of Judea, while Herod the Tetrarch was the local authority over a portion of Judea. So that's the difference. And discovering he is from the jurisdiction of Herodas, or Herod, he sent him to Herod, he also being in Jerusalem in those days. 
The CODIS is Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, and the majority text upon which the King James is based. They have then Pilatus, then Pilate hearing Galilea or Galilee inquired. Here the Christogenia New Testament says then Pilate hearing inquired whether the man is a Galilean. The Christogenia New Testament follows the third century papyrus, P75, along with the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Borgianus in this case, which are all from the 4th and 5th centuries. I'm going to note this quite often tonight. I'm going to note it quite often because I, I, I endeavor to demonstrate how in many places the majority text upon which the King James is based very often agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus. The word, and, and I'll explain more of that later in this program, the word exousia here is usually power or authority. Exousia is Strong's number 1849. But in this context, it is jurisdiction. And Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, under the word exousia in part 4, cites both Luke chapter 4, verse 6, and this passage as examples of the use of the word in that manner. In Luke alone, we learn that Pilate had sent Christ to Herod and did not surrender Christ to the desires of the high priests, of the Judeans, until Herod had sent him back. So from each writer, we see differing aspects of the events of that day, and surely because no writer recorded those events completely. And each gospel writer had different perspectives of the events formed from the things which they both saw for themselves and that which they heard from others, which is certainly Luke's case. Luke was not an eyewitness. None of the accounts necessarily conflict. And none of the accounts can be proven to be false. They are all merely different because each writer had a different knowledge or placed a different emphasis on the various things, on the many various things which occurred that day. In retrospect, it is fortuitous that the disciples were scattered. They were separated from one another at this time, as Mark tells us, at the end of the 14th chapter in his gospel. Because they were scattered, in that manner we have these different accounts from different aspects, and each of them helps to fill in the gaps that a single account from a single perspective would not have been able to provide. As for Luke's record that Pilate sent Christ to Herod, the Gospel of John seems to indirectly corroborate Luke in regard to the account of Pilate sending Christ to Herod. However, John does not actually describe such an event. Rather, John says of Pilate's initial address to the Judeans as he first encountered them at the Praetorium, and I'll read from John 19, 29,
Therefore, Pilate came outside to them and declared, What charge do you bring against this man? They replied and said to him, If this man was not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. Therefore Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. The Judeans said to him, It is not lawful for us to slay anyone, that the word of Yahshua would be fulfilled, which he spoke, indicating by what sort of death he was going to die. Now here there are several things which may be discussed. First, this may be where the Judeans realized that the charges they had initially contrived in the courtyard of the high priest were not sufficient for a capital offense, although that is not supported according to the manner in which Luke presents the account. Secondly, where John has Pilate saying merely, you take him and judge him according to your law. That may be the point where Luke has Christ being brought from Pilate to Herod, but which John did not fully record for one reason or another. Third, John's account elucidates for us the fact that lawfully only the Roman authorities could try capital offenses, a fact which the high priests recorded as having recognized here in John chapter 19 in these verses. If indeed the Judeans had the ability to execute Christ, the method of execution would have been stoning. There is an unlawful stoning of the martyr Stephen recorded in the book of Acts, I believe in Acts chapter 7 or maybe Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 7, I think. The Romans used crucifixion as a method of execution. And 40 years later, they crucified many people who were captured during the siege of Jerusalem under Titus. The historian Flavius Josephus records those executions at length. The practice of crucifixion among the Persians was mentioned several times in the pages of the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote five centuries before the time of Christ, and whose words in that manner are confirmed by the inscriptions on the Behistun rock. So we see that crucifixion is a very old form of execution, and we also see that the Romans practiced crucifixion. And they did so regularly. Even though in, in, their, um, in their circus games they got quite that they got quite a bit more creative. If Christ were to be executed by the Romans, then the word of Yahshua would be fulfilled which he spoke indicating by what sort of death he was going to die. Another example of the prescience of Yahweh in Christ. If he'd have been executed by the Judeans, he would not have been crucified. He would have been stoned. Verse 8. Then Herod, seeing Yahshua, rejoiced exceedingly, for he was for a considerable time wishing to see him on account of that which is heard concerning him, and he hoped to see some sign coming from him. 
the Codex Alexandrinus, here we go again, and the majority text upon which the King James Version is based, both want the word rendered time in this passage. And they order a few other words differently. And so the text of those manuscripts would be read in part, rather than, for he was for a considerable time wishing to see him, they would be rendered, for he was at length wishing to see him. Later in the sentence, those same codices have, on account of the many things being heard, rather than on account of that which is heard concerning him. The text of the Christogenian New Testament in these instances follows the 3rd century papyrus, P75, in the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Beze, and Borgianus. The Codex Washingtonensis does something odd. It follows the Codex Alexandrinus in the later part of the verse, but the other manuscripts at the beginning. I note these things <clears throat> for, for a good reason. I note these things because it is quite evident that in many places the King James Version follows the Codex Alexandrinus, contrary to the several older manuscripts. And because I have encountered many advocates of the King James Version over the past several years, who have hypocritically criticized the so-called Alexandrian tradition, of which the Codex Alexandrinus is the leading example. They don't realize that the King James version of the Bible very often follows the Codex Alexandrinus. Whenever the Codex Alexandrinus differs from the older manuscripts, the King James usually follows the Codex Alexandrinus. It usually agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus. And the Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are both esteemed to be at least a century older. Verse 9. And he questioned him with many statements, but he answered him nothing. Then the high priests and the scribes had stood vigorously accusing him and belittling him. Herod with his soldiers, then mocking him, wrapping him in a splendid garment, returned him to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that day, for formerly they were at enmity between themselves. There was much contention between Pilate and the Judeans in general throughout the tenure of Pilate as the governor of Judea. First over his plan to place the effigies of Caesar in the temple at Jerusalem, and then over the construction of an aqueduct into the city, where many Judeans protested the building of the aqueduct, and they were killed by the Romans. While there is not much other evidence to provide a reason, Many attribute these things as the cause of the enmity between Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. While Christ would not answer charges against him which were leveled by the high priests, as it is also described in Mark chapter 14, verses 60 and 61 in the, of the events in the court of the high priest, Christ also made no reply before Pilate concerning the charges made against him by the Judeans. 
as the passage at Matthew chapter 27, verses 12 through 14 attest. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, here Christ uttered not a word to Herod, who for a considerable time had been anxious to see him, and who in the end must have been quite disappointed at the outcome of the meeting. Herod was, as Josephus often attests, from the family of Edomite Jews. Such is how Christians should treat Jews, not even respecting them as persons. Yet Christ did converse with Pilate himself, as especially the Gospel of John describes. When Pilate took him away from his accusers into the praetorium, he held conversations with him. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. The entire chapter is a messianic prophecy. Yet he opens not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Verse 13. Then Pilate, convening with the high priests and the leaders of the people, said to them, You have brought to me this man as if he had been turning away the people. And behold, I before you inquiring found nothing with this man guilty of that which you make an accusation against him. I have a translation note here. Early in the chapter, the word diastrepho, literally to twist, was rendered as to pervert. Here in the King James Version, in this passage, the King James renders the word apostrepho. Apostrepho. Apostrepho is the same base word, strepho, meaning to turn or to coil, with a different prefix. The preposition Apo, rather than the preposition dia or dia. Where diastrepho is literally to turn through or to turn by and can be to pervert, apostrepho is literally to turn back or to turn from, and therefore it's rendered to turn away here. While either word may metaphorically be pervert, I chose not to render them in the same manner. While it is evident that none of the gospel accounts are complete, it is also evident from all of them that the high priest had charged Christ without any evidence of substance by which to support their claims, as Pilate had realized. The dialogue of Pilate continues, verse 15, Yet not even Herod, for he had sent him back to you, and behold, there is nothing worthy of death done by him. Therefore, chastising him, I shall release him. Herod evidently sent Christ back to Pilate without charges, and Pilate attempted to use that as a reason to free him. The codices Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, and the majority text upon which the King James Version is based They all have, yet not even Herod, for I had sent him, for, for I had sent you to him, as part of Pilate's address here, rather than 
yet not even Herod, for he had sent him back to you. Again, the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the 3rd century papyrus P75 and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Borgianus. Verse 17. Verse 17 is wanting in the Christogenian New Testament. You won't find it there. It is found in the codices Sinaiticus. Now, this is a major variation in the manuscripts because the variation is found in the oldest of the manuscripts. It is found in the codices Sinaiticus, 4th century, the Washingtonensis, and in the majority text upon which the King James is based. It is also found in the Codex Beze, 5th century, but in the Codex Beze, it doesn't appear until after verse 19. It's the same verse, it's in a different place. Verse 17 is wanting in the 3rd century papyrus P75 and in the codices Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Borgianus. The Vaticanus being from the 4th century and the Alexandrinus and Borgianus both being esteemed as being from the 5th. Found in the King James Version, in parentheses, which indicates a parenthetical statement, and not, as many casual readers wrongly assume, an interpolation. It is translated in the King James, and I quote, For of necessity he must release one of them, one unto them at the feast. Surely this seems to be a marginal note which made its way into the text of some manuscripts. And thus is the reason for the division among the earliest manuscripts. Verse 19 is also a parenthetical statement, and it is found in all of the manuscripts. Making the Christogenian New Testament, the text of verse 17 was not considered to be a parenthetical statement of Matthew's, like verse 19 is, but rather an explanatory statement added by a later scribe and is therefore omitted from the translation. And I esteem that because the oldest manuscripts are sharply divided on the issue. Also because manuscripts which usually agree with each other for instance, the Codex Washingtonensis and the Codex Alexandrinus in this, in this case, they usually agree with each not always, but usually agree with each other, or at least I should say frequently agree with each other, and here they disagree. Both Matthew and Mark seem to describe, seem on the surface to describe, only a one-time encounter between Christ and Pilate before they described the release of Barabbas. Here in Luke, we see that Christ was presented to Pilate twice, once before being sent to Herod, and again upon his return. While the account of John is from a quite different perspective, it seems, as I have already said, to support the account of Luke, where Pilate questions Christ and his accusers initially, 
and then speaks to Christ alone in a praetorium before addressing his accusers once again. However, the language at Matthew 27, 17 also seems to corroborate the account of Luke here in that verse where Matthew is describing the release of Barabbas. He has the words, upon their convening, Pilate said to them. That seems innocuous, right? However, it's quite important. Because they indicate that the events of the day were much more protracted than Matthew's short description of them seems to imply. The King James Version has it, Matthew 27, 17, in part. Therefore, when they were gathered together. Yet, if you read the account, they were already gathered together, and they were never described as having adjourned. So why did Matthew again write, therefore, when they were gathered together? Because there was a break in the narrative which was not fully related. And it was during this break that Pilate had his private conversation with Christ in the praetorium, which is recorded by John. It was also during this break, from Matthew's perspective, that Christ had been sent to Herod, who only returned him to Pilate. After these things, which neither Matthew nor Mark recorded, there was the second gathering of the Judeans, the accused Christ, and Pilate, and therefore, Matthew writes, therefore, upon their convening, or as the King James Version has it, therefore, when they were gathered together. So we see that Matthew, albeit indirectly, supports Luke's version, because there had to be a break in the action that Matthew did not record, or at least did not record what happened in the interim. If there was no break, he would not have written those words, therefore, when they were gathered together, because they were already gathered together. Matthew 27. Luke 23, 18. But the whole multitude cried out, saying, Kill him, and release Barabbas for us, whom was, because of a certain sedition which happened in the city, and a murder, cast into prison. Verse 19 being a parenthetical statement by the author, which appears in all the ancient manuscripts. First the word hiero. I'm sorry, Iro, A-I-R-O. Iro is primarily to take up, raise up. It's aero, right? A-E-R-O in English. It, it's a very similarly, it, it's a related word because the Greek word air is the base. It primarily means to take up, to raise up, to lift up but is also used to describe something lifted up and taken away, to remove, to take off. And in that sense, to kill, to kill according to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon. And so it is to kill here, in verse 18, several times. Yep, 
it's used, while there are many other verbs which literally mean kill, also seems to infer that crucifixion is the expected method to lift up. I'd like to talk about Barabbas for a second. There was a fascinating story told by Wesley Swift in relation to this Barabbas, which must be addressed here. The story is found under the title, The Blue Tunic Army of Christ. And it is found in most of the archives of Wesley Swift's papers, including the Wesley Swift archive at Christogenia, which I soon plan to preface with this paragraph. I do not know if Swift himself originated this story or not. However, I do know this. There is absolutely not one shred of biblical or historical evidence to support that story. Swift claims that Barabbas was the leader of an organized resistance movement which had the blessings of Christ and which served to protect him sort of like the National Socialist Brown Shirts of the 1920s. However, Luke states rather clearly that Barabbas, and I quote, was because of a certain sedition which happened in the city and a murder cast into prison. Matthew states merely that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. And Mark states that he was bound with those rebels who in the sedition committed a murder. However, John tells us rather bluntly that Barabbas was a robber. There is no reason to doubt the gospel accounts. And there is no reason, I'm sorry, and there is no indication that Barabbas was anything more than a common robber involved in sedition and murder and there were a lot of them floating around in those days. Judea in the first century was like the Wild West. There was no indication that Christ had anything to do with Barabbas or with any band of robbers. Thou shalt not steal. I'm sure he would have told them that. Wesley Swift pointed out many good things concerning Scripture. And for that reason, his work is worth preserving, and that's why I have a Wesley Swift archive at Christogenia from a CD full of papers that were received through Lorraine, from Lorraine Swift herself. However, Wesley's many innovations, and additionally, his tendency towards syncretism, I'll be talking about syncretism tonight, those things allow for the propagation of much error if his work is not treated with care. And there are other things in Wesley Swift's work that I have serious disagreement with. And that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. We can all make mistakes, and I'm sure I've made my share. But this story about Barabbas in the Blue Tunic Army of Christ is more than a mistake. It's an innovation. It's a totally unnecessary innovation. And identity Christians, not only should we examine the works of our teachers for ourselves, 
and seek to correct their mistakes, we have to reject their innovations. And Wesley Swift was very wrong in the Blue Tunic Army of Christ. Luke 23, verse 20. Then again, Pilate addressed them, desiring to release Yahshua. But they shouted out, saying, You must crucify, you must crucify him. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have a participle, crucify, crucify him. The Codex Washingtonensis has only crucify him. They only have the phrase repeated once. Matthew supplies us with a more complete account where it is recorded as having Pilate, as Pilate having expressed that Yahshua was called the Christ. And that the leaders of the Judeans were demanding his execution because they were jealous of him. Mark's account differs somewhat, where it Mark 15, verses 9 and 10, he wrote, Then Pilate replied to them, saying, Do you desire that I shall release for you the king of the Judeans? And then Mark says, For he knew that on account of envy the high priests handed him over. Matthew's version, rather than king of the Judeans, says, Jesus, who is called Christ. Verse 22. Then a third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I find in him nothing guilty for death. Therefore chastising him, I shall release him. But they were pressing on with great voices, demanding for him to be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Not apparent in Luke's account. In the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, it is stated that the high priests persuaded and even agitated the crowd into demanding the execution of Yahshua and the release of Barabbas. Matthew 27, verse 20 states, But the high priests and the elders persuaded the crowds that they should request Barabbas and that they should destroy Yahshua. Here in Luke, the codices Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, and the majority text upon which the King James is based all had the end of verse 23 to say, and their voices and those of the high priests prevailed. So we do see that they read the high priest's involvement in Luke. The Christogenian New Testament is based on the 3rd century papyrus P75 and the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. It is evident that many of the differences among the earliest manuscripts are due to clarifications made by scribes for better or worse and for good or for bad. Verse 24, and Pilate decided to meet their demands. The word meet is literally produce or make happen. 25, 
So he released he whom, because of a sedition and a murder, was cast into prison, whom they demanded. And Yahshua, he handed over to their desires. The words of Luke here are very similar to those recorded in Mark, Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Matthew provides a fuller account from Matthew 27, 24. And Pilate, seeing that nothing helps, but rather a tumult arises, taking water, washed the hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent from the blood of this man. You see to it. And responding, all the people said, his blood is upon us and upon our children. And John's version corroborates that. Pilate's washing of, of, washing of his hands to symbolize his washing of the blood from his hands, the blood that was about, the innocent blood that was about to be poured. Then he released Barabbas for them, but having scourged Joshua, he handed him over in order that he would be crucified. The account of Pilate's having given the Judeans a choice between Barabbas and Joshua is described by John quite differently, where John focuses on exchanges between Pilate and Yahshua Christ, which the other gospel writers did not record. Perhaps they were unaware of them. John relates that Pilate sought to release Christ and that he was threatened by the Judeans if he did not relent to their desires. John 19.12 states that from this point, Pilate sought to release him. But the Judeans cried out, saying, If you should release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone making himself king, the unproven charge on behalf of the Judeans, speaks in opposition to Caesar. If Pilate had not relented, and if a riot had happened in a city where tens of thousands of outsiders, perhaps a million, were gathered for the feast, in addition to the regular population, then he himself would have had to answer to Caesar against all of the accusations of the Judeans. That would have been a situation he could not have won, since the life of one man, a man who is not a Roman, was simply not esteemed in contrast to the peace imposed by Roman tyranny. And it's, it's important to understand that Christ was not a Roman citizen. Paul, later, when he faced charges that may get him executed, could appeal to Caesar because Paul, being born in Tarsus, was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had a right to appeal to Caesar. Where non-Roman citizens in imperial provinces had no such right of appeal the proconsul or whoever was the governor or the head military figure of the, of the province had say over the man's life or death. At this point, both Matthew and Mark record the abuse of Christ by the Roman soldiers, which neither Luke nor John reported. Matthew's account reads from verse 27 of chapter 27, Then the soldiers of the governor, taking Yahshua into the praetorium, the whole cohort gathered upon him. 
and clothing him, they wrapped him, they wrapped around him a scarlet cloak. And braiding a crown out of thorns, they set it upon his, upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And falling to the knees before him, they had mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Judeans. And spitting at him, they took the reed and beat it on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the cloak and clothed him in his garments and led him off for which to be crucified. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized upon one Simon, a Corinthian, who was coming from the field and placed upon him the cross to bear behind Joshua. Many commentators have asserted that this Simon was some sort of brown Arab or even a Negro simply because he was from Curene. Curene is, I think it's usually pronounced Cyrene. It's spelled C-Y-R-E-N-E in English. Curene, K-U-R-E-N-E, would be the Greek pronunciation. Cyrene was in Africa. It is incredible the lengths some people go to and the lies they repeat without question in order to make excuses for universalism. First, while Simon was a name found among the Greeks, it was mostly and originally a popular Hebrew name. Here in his version of the account, Mark mentions the names of his sons as if they were expected to be known by his readers. And we see that his sons had common Greek names. Curene was a famous Greek settlement on that part of the African coast which was adjacent to Egypt. The settlement is described by Greek historians as far back as Herodotus, and it probably dates to at least the 7th century BC, and perhaps to the 8th. Prior to the start of the Persian period, Simon, this Simon, the Kerenian, Simon of Cyrene, if you will, was with all certainty an Israelite Judean from Kurene, fulfilling his scriptural obligation to appear in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He was not a brown man. He came from a Greek land, from a colony long held by Greeks, and probably devoid of all Negroes for quite some time after Christ, or all Arabs. Here, Matthew and Mark both record the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. where Mark chapter 15, verse 23 says, and they had given to him wine flavored with myrrh, or myrrh, which he did not take. 
myrrh being the aromatic aromatic ointment, which was quite bitter to the taste. Luke twenty three twenty seven, And there followed him a great multitude of people, and of women mourning and lamenting him. And then turning to them, Yahshua said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, because behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the sterile, and the wombs which have not brought forth and the breasts which have not nursed. Then they shall go on to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Because if they do these things to the moist wood, what happens to the dry? The sayings of Christ here in verses 27 through 31 are only attested by Luke. In the Christogenian New Testament, they shall go on those words are from a form of the Greek verb arco, which is literally to begin. It may have been read, they shall begin to say. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon supports my rendering. Where he explains that the word was used of something which had begun from some person or thing and continued to some other person or thing. Language appearing in verse 30 here is similarly found in Isaiah 2.19, Hosea 10.8, and Revelation 6.16. I'm referring to the cry for the mountains to fall on us and for the hills to cover us in a time of severe distress or panic when men would rather die. And surely Christ is referring to the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the vengeance against these people. And we await that day again for various prophetic reasons. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 from the King James Version. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. While that passage was a prophecy concerning the fall of Rome, History surely repeats itself because men fail to accept its lessons. We await that very time once again with the fall of Babylon. Concerning verse 31 where it says, because if they do these things to the moist wood, what happens to the dry? In the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, it is found under the adjective hugros, Strong's number 5200, which literally means moist, that it can also mean of persons or their tempers, facile, pliant, or easy. The word zeros, Strong's number 3584, is its antonym and literally means dry, 
but also of persons or things may mean withered, austere, or harsh in certain contexts. Verse 32. And they also brought two other criminals with him to be killed. And when they came to a place called the Skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. All four gospel writers agree on the place of the crucifixion. Only Matthew and Mark give both the Hebrew name Golgotha and the Greek meaning supplied here by Luke. The word cranion is skull. The name Calvary, which is seen in the King James Version, is a word created from the Latin word calva, which is a skull. The King James Version in many ways had influences from Jerome and his Latin Vulgate. Golgotha is from a Hebrew word found at Strong's Hebrew number 1538, Golgoleth, meaning skull. All four gospel writers also attest that Christ was crucified with two others, men who were robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. Verse 34, and casting lots, they divided his garments. Here's another major early departure among the manuscripts. The codices Sinaiticus, Ephraim Siri, and the majority text, and also the codices the, I'm sorry, the Codex Alexandrinus, which varies slightly. All of these insert a sentence before verse 34, as it appears here. And the subject of the sentence is obviously the Roman soldiers who were assigned to the actual execution of the task at hand. And the sentence reads in the King James... And Yahshua said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The third century papyrus P75 and the codices Vaticanus from the fourth century, Beze and Washingtonensis, both from the fifth, do not have the sentence. The oldest manuscripts here of the papyrus P75 from the 3rd century, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, both from the 4th. Here in the Christogenian New Testament translation of Luke, the Codex Vaticanus has probably been the most consistently followed of the group and is deviated from on only a few occasions where the evidence is consistent with all or most of the others and combined with other factors It is outweighed for no one manuscript should be considered to be perfect. Yet in this passage, support for the reading of the Codex Vaticanus is plentiful among manuscripts nearly as old and the one older papyrus. The Codices Alexandrinus and Washingtonensis, again, which so often agree elsewhere, are divided here as they also are 
in the interpolation at verse 17 of this chapter. The Codex Alexandrinus, uh, I'm sorry, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Sinaiticus, while it almost always agrees and, and, and with the Codex Vaticanus, um, the two are very consistent with each other. Generally, throughout Luke, the Codex Sinaiticus seems to be the victim of several other lengthy interpolations in Luke, such as those which appear in the King James Version at chapter 22, verses 43 and 44, and here in this chapter at verse 17. The Novum Testamentum Greca includes this sentence concerning the Roman soldiers here in this, in this verse, but it marks it as doubtful. Like the questionable passage found in Luke 22, verses 43 and 44, this passage does not appear in the other Gospels. Last week we discussed Luke 22, verses 43 and 44, where, where um, Christ cried and, and, and his tears were as clots of blood falling to the ground, and an angel came and assisted him. The oldest manuscripts are divided there, and the oldest manuscripts are divided here. Where the oldest manuscripts are divided, if the verse is not attested to by the other Gospels, and the oldest manuscripts are divided, and whether the text exists or not has absolutely no impact on any Christian doctrine, I prefer to count the verse as an interpolation. And I count this sentence here as an interpolation for that reason. The two of, of the three oldest manuscripts, two of them are wanting this verse. And it's not important to any Christian doctrine that the Roman soldiers divided his garment for lots and Christ said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All Israel is saved. And it's evident that the Roman soldiers, they, didn't, they were just following orders and really didn't know what they were doing. I'd like to address one more aspect of this verse. Now, I do not accept the, the sentence as scriptural, but it doesn't really matter to me whether the sentence is accepted or not. I can treat it very objectively. It has no impact on Christian doctrine. There's a reading of this verse, which um, I'm very familiar with from several older Christian identity pastors and, and teachers who make an innovation and would like to read the verse by moving the comma. They would like it to read, Father, forgive them not, for they know what they do. And that's kind of cute to move a comma and to make something say exactly what it doesn't say. It's kind of cute because you can't do that in Greek because there are no commas in the original. The reader of Greek would add a comma to English after he has determined what the Greek says, right? The people that read that verse and that passage in that manner, Father, forgive them not, for they know what they do, First, they usually don't examine the context of the passage 
to realize that it's talking about the Roman soldiers. That's their first mistake. They think that it's talking about the Jews, and of course God's not going to forgive the Jews, meaning the Edomite Jews who were primarily responsible for the murder of Christ. And I would, uh, I would agree with them that God is not going to forgive them because they have nothing to forgive. They're broken cisterns, they're bastards, they're accursed, and they can't go to heaven. Pretty simple. Father, forgive them not, for they know what they do, is impossible in in English, because it's impossible in Greek. When I was confronted with that reading many years ago, I sat down and I wrote out by hand every instance of in Luke's writing of a negative particle with a verb. And I found Luke to be very consistent and of course this is normal in Greek grammar, that Luke should be so consistent, that when a verb is negated, the negative particle precedes the verb that's being negated. And that is the case here. The sentence construction is impossible to read any other way. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That word, that negative particle belongs to the verb to know, not the verb to forgive. So the people that want to innovate with that verse, they simply don't know anything about Greek grammar, and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Because you can't move the comma in Greek. And it's the Greek that matters, not the English. I just thought I'd throw that in there. And as some of the challenges that, that um, Christian identity students face in cutting through the misconceptions, the poor scholarship, and, and a lot of the other trash that, that's out there. It, it's... Um, it, it's that there are a lot of hurdles to become learned in Scripture. The biggest hurdle being the bullshit detector. You have to have a good one. That's just the way it is. Father, forgive them, for they know what they for they know not what they do is absolutely the only correct Greek reading of, of that passage. However, and it's not really important to me, but because it doesn't appear in the 3rd century papyri P75, and because it doesn't appear in the Codex Vaticanus, I believe that the passage is spurious. John describes the parting of Joshua's garments at length, where he states, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Joshua, took his garments and they made four parts, a part for each soldier. And the shirt, now the shirt was seamless, woven altogether from the top. Therefore they said to one another, We shouldn't tear it, but we should cast lots for it, whose lot it shall be. 
that the writing would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. So therefore the soldiers did these things. And Luke did not notice the scripture, which that, which that passage or, or that happenstance, that event, fulfilled. Thank you for joining me tonight. I will be back here at 11 p.m. to discuss the um, well, well, to discuss the identity Christians need for a good bullshit detector. We'll be talking about why December 21st, 2012 is not the end of the world. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I hope to see you soon.